this episode of this podcast is making me thirsty is brought to you by the Nakahama Broadcast Corporation, home of the super terrific happy hour. Welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty, the number one destination for Seinfeld fans. This is episode 83. Today's guest is a media consultant with over 35 years experience in program planning, scheduling, and audience research. He was the executive vice president of program planning and scheduling research at NBC from 1991 to 2000, and he was instrumental in the early success of Seinfeld. Preston Beckman, thank you for listening. If you dig it, please pass it on. Follow us on Twitter at This Thirsty, Instagram at This Thirsty, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. This podcast is making me thirsty. Episode 83, Preston Beckman. Welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty. The number one destination for Seinfeld fans. This episode 83 Today's guest is a media consultant with over 35 years experience in program planning, scheduling, and audience research. He holds a PhD in sociology from NYU, recently consulted on the launch of the Discovery Plus streaming service. And of course, he was executive vice president of program planning and scheduling research at NBC from 1991 to 2000, where he was instrumental in the success of Seinfeld. Please welcome Preston Beckman. Preston, thanks for joining. Happy to be here. So Preston, so take us back, and b- before we get into Seinfeld specifically, just tell us a little bit about your role. I mean, I know in, in 1991 you shifted over from the research department into scheduling, but can you get, tell us a little bit of what, of what your job was at NBC during those, th- th- those days? I mean, in, in scheduling, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, scheduling, there were kind of two parts to scheduling. There was the non-sexy part which was the day-to-day, week-to-week grind of putting, putting the schedule together, making sure the, uh, the producers knew when we needed original episodes, um, all that kind of stuff. And, and there was also the, the, the multidimensional chess, because back when I was doing it in the 90s, it was still pretty much a zero-sum game where – the success of NBC would generally be at the cost of CBS or ABC. So there was a lot of um, gamesmanship, gamespersonship, I guess I should say now, going, going on uh, among the, five, the four networks. And, um, you know, that was a big part of the job uh, was, was playing that game. And so that was one whole part of it. The other part was more of the strategy. Uh, what do we need? What's the schedule going to look like next year? What's what's the long term goal? That what are we trying to achieve long term? And that would be conversations that I would have primarily with uh, my boss, who through most of my time at NBC and scheduling was Warren Littlefield. Um, but I also uh, would bring in the the heads of sales, finance, business affairs. All of those people would work. I would work with all of them to come up with the the bigger long-term plan for the network. The goal being pretty simple. You know, how do you, how are you the number one network in 1849 adults? Uh, How are you doing it in a way that advertisers want to be in those shows? And how are you doing it by reducing the cost of failure to your schedule and investing in success? And, that was pretty much the job. It was a fun. It was a fun job because it was. I didn't know what would happen on any given day. Right. So I'm interested in when you need originals, but let's get back to that. So, but 1991, you came in. Um, NBC was in a bit of a transition phase, right? I mean, if you think okay. about you think about 1986, they had four of the top five shows, right? Cosby, Family Ties, Cheers, and uh, Golden Girls. So 91, you came in. Cosby was kind of shifted out. It was kind of just cheers, right? So tell us a little bit about um, how you approach Thursday night. Um, And I do want to hear about Wings. And there's such an emphasis on Wings (laughs) on Thursday night, but I'm curious about that as well. 
Well, I, I, I approached the job assuming I was going to get fired. <laughs> to be honest, uh, I I, uh, I spent the first 10 years in New York City in scheduling and got to know Brandon Tartikoff, who was the president of NBC Entertainment, got to know Warren. And uh, when Brandon left and Warren assumed uh, the top programming job, and he asked me if I would come out, but you're not being asked, you're being told. You know, it's like, sure, no, 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 I don't want to do that. You know, you might as well just start looking for another job. But, you know, Warren replaced what was perceived in the outside world as a legend. Uh, Warren had a very different persona than Brandon did. And things weren't going well. And Brandon left us with a mess and went off to Paramount Pictures. So when um, I took the job, I still remember looking at my family as we flew from New York City to, to Los Angeles. And I just said to myself, what have I done? Uh, you know, we're going to come out here. Uh, I have no idea if we can turn this around. And I have no idea if they will give us the time to turn it around. So I was, uh, that was pretty much my goal was don't get fired. Um, I did say to Warren that it would take us three years to turn the network around. That the first year, 91-92 season was going to be triage. Just keep, keep stop the bleeding in some way. Uh, then, you know, the second year would be to start to build the kind of a structure to a schedule that we wanted. And the third year, hopefully, we could start to populate it with shows um, that that would work. And that's pretty much what happened. Not that I knew what I was talking about, but I had to say <laughs> something to make it seem like I, you know, had a strategy. Um, so uh, that was pretty much it. It was it was a, it was rebuilding uh, Cosby. Uh, when I came out there, Cosby was in its last year. You're right. We really only had Cheers. Um, several other shows were starting to you know, <laughs> Fresh Prince, a couple of shows were starting to show their age and we really needed to start almost from scratch. It's interesting too, because your, your previous position with NBC before, you know, it was, it was in charge of scheduling was you were, you know, the VP of audience research. Now I'm assuming in that role, you must've had your finger on the pulse of what, you know, what people were looking for. And, and so what did you see in that role with Seinfeld in the first, you know, four episodes when everyone else was kind of like, it's not getting ratings and things like that. What were you seeing in your, in your research that was telling you we might have something here when maybe other people weren't seeing it, uh, you know? Well, I, I wish I was that prescient. Um, <laughs> I, I was, I was um, fortunate enough to be invited out to pilot season in 1989. So I was in the room when we screened the Seinfeld Chronicles. Which was, mm -hmm. you know, what I saw in it, and I was I was not alone. There were there were there were other champions, but what I saw in it was something different from what NBC was doing. Um, you know, Brandon, to his credit, had a very successful run, but everything felt very conventional. And um, ABC was starting to do some, uh, I would, for want of a better word, young adult comedies you know, relationship comedies, people in their 20s, whatever. We weren't doing that. We were still doing the, you know, um, different strokes or whatever that was and Facts of Life, you know, and that still was Brandon's, even Fresh Prince, which was revolutionary in the sense of who we cast in the lead, was a very conventional right. sitcom. Seinfeld just felt different uh, than anything I had seen in, in the time I was at, it, it was funny. It was smart. Um, remember, the pilot did not have Julia Louis-Dreyfus in it. Right. It the, three, the three guys. There was just something. And um, I'm a little older than you guys. So <laughs> for me, some of my uh, the shows that really uh, inspired me to love television were Burns and Allen, the Jack Benny show. They were shows where about the character, they, they played themselves. You know, right. Burns and Allen was George Burns would be up in his den watching, and they say, yeah, let's go down there. You know, Jack Benny, you always knew he, he was aware that he was in the show, and that's how Seinfeld felt. It was about Jerry Seinfeld. Right. So um, putting aside ratings, putting aside all that, just creatively, it was just, wow, this is different. I had no idea if it would work, but to me, different and funny. 
are are pretty important. And Brandon uh, did say in the room, it's too Jewish and it's too New York. He did say that. Mm. And and when we uh, we ran uh, we ran the episode back then, we would uh, we, we would amortize the cost of episodes of pilots by running them on the air. And when it ran, I wrote, and back then it was stale mail. It wasn't like now you send an email and there it is. I, I wrote, uh, in my role as in audience research, I wrote an email, a mail um, to Brandon, basically saying, look, look at how it did in all these non, you know, New York markets. Clearly, right. people decided to hang around and watch this thing. I don't, I'm not saying that's why we picked up four more episodes, but I think there were, were enough of us who felt there was something different here. And the other thing, and I'm sure his name has been mentioned on your, if you've done 80 or 70 of these things, is Rick Ludwig. Right. Uh, yeah, Rick Rick developed the show. Rick was not, the show was not developed in the conventional way, uh, which is either comedy or drama. This was developed by the head of late night and specials. And Rick is just, you know, I was very blessed to share a suite with him while I was out in Burbank. And Rick is a very low-key, self-effacing person. And I still remember we, when we screened the pilots, the head of comedy or drama development would introduce the pilot. And now Seinfeld comes along, and here comes Rick's, and he just really low-keyed it. You know, I figured I'd take a shot. You know, he's very, very low-key about the whole thing. And there were, for me, the heavens opened. I was not alone in feeling that way. There were others in the room. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the how it was different. That's what struck me too. You know, I was you know uh, twelve years old or whatever I was at the time, and I'm and I watched television. That's all I did was watch television. And you, you figure out the formula of these shows. They all were the same formula. Once you figured out the formula, you knew what was going to happen, and kind of just fell into it and watched it. But with Seinfeld, I'd be watching and be like, "Wait, this is not. There's no formula. There's nothing. Wait, what's going on here now?" It was like so different in that it didn't like it didn't have that formula where you kind of knew what each beat was going to be and where the story was going to go. And at the end, there was going to be this lesson or whatever it was, or, you know, the, every show had their char character messes up, then he apologizes. And then at the end, they're all, you know, it was all that stuff all the time. And then Seinfeld well, wasn't that. And it was like, Whoa, what is this? You know? Well, one thing, obviously you're a student of it is how many scenes there were in mm. an episode. There were yeah. far more scenes in an episode of Seinfeld than any other show. It was like a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, Seinfeld to me worked because it was a sitcom. You know, so much of, of what we call sit comedies today are not sitcoms. Right. They're dramedies and comamas and sadities and warmities. They're not funny. They're not and Seinfeld was literally set up the premise, go through all these scenes, and deliver at the end. And that's what made it so great for me and for obviously other people was it always had a smart way of taking everything and putting it together in a very funny, uh, smart ending. Mm -hmm. So, um, Preston, back back to scheduling because yeah. you know it plays such an important piece in a success or failure of a show, as I'm sure you know. So, take us back. So, 1991, right? You mentioned the pilot that was July 5th, 89. Uh, 1990, Seinfeld was on in the summer during Cheers reruns, so it, it got a boost from there. Boy. So then when you were there, season two officially, right, it kicked off on Wednesdays and then jumped to Thursdays. Like, no. 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 Uh, I showed up in 91, 92. 91, 92. So that was yeah, season two. Seinfeld spent the entire season on Wednesday night paired up with Night Court. I do believe it was sometime during that season we flipped the shows. Uh, Night Court was at 9 on Wednesday, and Seinfeld was at 9.30, and I do believe we flipped them. I remember we, the promos for that, yeah. Yeah, we were in a current <laughs> meeting, and, you know, by then we knew. We didn't know it would be the rating success it was going to be, but we knew this was this was something really unique and special and we literally in the room a bunch of us just you know i think maybe we should, this is really the lead-off show because generally the 8 and the 9 p.m shows were considered considered the stronger shows and it was no reflection on night quarter it was just that we have this show and right. let's put it in the time period that it deserves to be in 
I believe in 91, it was going up against home improvement um, and still held its own. We knew we weren't going to beat home improvement, but for another comedy to go into that time period and, and, and succeed was telling us something. And to, you know, to answer your question about how did I know, you know, this is before social media. So I knew something was going on because I would be, um, I live, I, live a very conventional life for a television executive. I didn't, my friends aren't in the business. Uh, we moved far enough away where my kids would go to public schools. We so we very so we got to know a lot of people who were civilians, you know, and we found we'd go to restaurants, what we found I was hearing people talking about the show. Because that's how you when people talk to each other back in the day, that's how um, you would find out things. I would literally be in a restaurant, and the next table I'd hear him describing something, and I knew it was an episode of Seinfeld. Um, I went to Anaheim. Jerry did a show in Anaheim, and I drove down there with my brother-in-law, and you could just feel the energy in the crowd. So something was going on. We knew something was happening. Now, granted, this is L.A., <laughs> but it just, it just felt this is, this, this is a real show. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the the home improvement thing because I remember watching Home Improvement, and then when you was on the same time, I'm like, I gotta stop watching Home Improvement now, and I just kept watching Seinfeld. I switched back over because it was like Even, there were DVRs back then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. exactly. But um, yeah, so the first year uh, Seinfeld stayed on when first year I was there, which was its first full season. Um, it stayed on Wednesday night, and then. Um, in year two, which was 92-93 season, um, we were we were still in. Um, oh my God, what are we going to do? This isn't working. You know, the, the schedule's not working. Ratings aren't that great. And we had uh, we used to have while so, while the other two network executives were enjoying certain holidays or days off, we would always be in the office trying to figure out what was going on. And it was Christmas Eve day. And we had a meeting uh, in, in the executive conference room to figure things out. Now, I knew then that after 13 original episodes of Wings, which was the um, uh, lead out to, to Cheers on Thursday night, Paramount show, Cheers was Paramount, that after 13 episodes in the 92-93 season, we could move it away from cheers and what i did in the in the executive office we had our scheduling board is i opened up the board and i the first thing i did was i said we have to circle the wagons we have to build a we have to build the biggest night we can with the biggest comedies that we have and i moved seinfeld to 9 30. i moved wings to 8 30 and i moved fresh prince which was was a pretty successful show Granted, wasn't compatible with the other shows, but it was our biggest comedy after those three. Moved it to 8 o'clock on Thursday. Uh, Warren, at that point, said, let me call Paramount and see if I can get extra episodes of Cheers so we could leave Fresh Prince on Monday night and put repeats. This was Cheers' final season. Right. And put repeats of Cheers at 8 o'clock. So... We walked out of the room with a um, schedule of Cheers repeats at 8, Wings at 8.30, Cheers, and Seinfeld at 9.30. Of course, in my job, as Warren told me early on when I came out here, he said, you have the ultimate second-guess job. That no matter what you do, somebody is going to tell you, you don't know what, can I curse? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, you don't know Let what, the explosives fly. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> and... And I really, that was probably the best advice anybody ever gave me in life. So, of course, all those people who love Seinfeld in the building or New York and say, I'll suddenly turn around and say, you're killing the show. It's not that big. It's not going to work after Cheers. It's going to drop like a rock and, the sh and we're going we're to cancel. <laughs> so, of course, that's, that was my life. So, it's interesting. <laughs> you mentioned Paramount. Did Paramount... Yeah. Did and cheer, uh, Cheers was, I guess, Paramount's studio, and so was Wings. Did was it like a package deal that they had? Yes. The when, oh. when I, when I um, as I said, I came out for pilots in '89, then I came out again in '90. 
uh, May of 90, I was still in research, but by then I was getting to know Brandon, getting to know Warren. And in um, that year, Brandon actually let me go up to the scheduling board. The first time, it's like in my religion, that's like opening up the Torah and taking <laughs> you know, the Ark and everything. And it's pretty intimidating going to going up to the scheduling board. I saw grown men. I've seen women do it also, but grown men literally shaking, trying to put a tile <laughs> on the board because it's it's you know it's high stakes poker. You're talking about a billion dollars up there. And I put um, in 1990, I put Seinfeld on the schedule behind Cheers. And Lee Curlin, who was Brandon Tarakoff's scheduler, took it off immediately. Just took it off. Ninety-one, I kind of had the job, but Lee was still there, and I put it again. I put Seinfeld on nine thirty after Cheers. Lee walked up, took it off. Okay, something's going on here. This is yes, no explanation, no nothing, and he just kept putting wings back behind. So when I came out in um, the fall of 91, I became good friends with John Agolia, who was our head of business affairs. And I brought it up with John one day and I said, you know, it's kind of strange that we, we've never really, we've never considered putting Seinfeld behind Cheers. And John told me why, which was that when we renewed Cheers for the final few seasons, we made a deal with Paramount where we had to keep wings behind um, cheers throughout the entire 91-92 season and the first 13 episodes of the 92-93 season. Uh, when I came out to uh, Burbank, I brought a desk with me, a wooden desk. And in 92-93, every week we ran original wings. I took a knife and I put a gash in the desk. So I had 13 <laughs> gashes in the desk. And when we had our emergency meeting in um, December, you know, I told everybody in January, we can, sometime in January, we will have run the 13 original wings and we can move Seinfeld. And we did immediately. And it worked, fortunately. Yeah, so you saw it early on. So it's, it's interesting how, you know, the, the famous line by Larry David, they weren't watching on Wednesday, I don't want to watch it on Thursday, right? And, and it's just, it's hard for people probably younger than us to, to realize what that meant as far as scheduling was or how I mentioned, like, you know, it, it, and your job was to, so I'm curious, what were you looking to, to, to line up shows that had similar sensibilities? So the people who liked one show would like another, or were you more of like, like you said, these are our best shows. Let's just block them all together. Uh, was it demographics? Like what went into just saying like, you know, let's put Seinfeld behind cheers, just our two best shows, or is it the same sensibilities? Like how did that, what's the social well, psychology of that? NBC, uh, a lot of things you stumble into some of these things, but NBC was, was perceived as a smart upscale urban network. We did smart shows. Uh, the sensibility of cheers, cheers was a very smart show. Seinfeld was a very smart show. Wings was a good show. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like a disaster. It just wasn't on that level, but it was also a smart show. Uh, so we were, we were looking to grow smart young adult comedies like friends, <laughs> you know? So, um, what you try and do is, um, have some kind of flow between the shows. You, 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 you say, okay, well, people who watch show A hang around for show B, you know, that if you have the bigger the hit, you're going to have a drop off. You just know it, you know, so you'd have mm -hmm. to evaluate what's an acceptable drop off and what's rejection. What's, you know, so yeah, we would always go for compatibility. And, and interestingly, you know, what you put in front back then, what you put in front of another show does have an impact, even if the shows aren't compatible. When Law and Order started, it did not have comedies in front of it. It had dramas. When we started playing comedies Wednesday, 8 to 9, especially with Seinfeld and Nightcore, we started to see the 18 to 49, which is the currency. The 18 to 49 ratings for Law and Order go up. Why? Because you're putting a promo in Seinfeld, Nightcore, whatever. And, you know, Law and Order was the kind of show where you could hook people. Yeah, the right promo. So we did see, you know, well, in order benefit from having comedies in front of it. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to build 
a night. You're trying to build some kind of a, a, a night. The, the, in the perfect world for us, it was four comedies and a drama. You know, start with start with the comedies and with the smart adult drama. That's how we tried to to schedule. Then you know, Dateline came along, and you know, Dateline became a big part of of what we were doing as well. Right, and you you anchor those comedies with L.A. Law and E.R. Obviously, but so back to back so back to your point. I, I didn't want to build something, but Wings at the end of the day, they were still doing twenty five million viewers. Like yeah. bad show or not, like between Cheers and L.A. Law, like. You probably could have been anything there, right? Um, this, this podcast, yeah, <laughs> touche. So I guess, I guess, what I'm trying to ask is like, and I, I like to kind of bring it back to sports a little bit. Like, is yeah. scheduling like like a day or time, right place, right time? Is it similar to like a QB succeeding in the right system, having the right people around him, essentially? Yeah, it's. I, I mean, I always looked at what I was doing as a form of Moneyball. I, I mean, it was. It was like how, a GM. Yeah, yeah. I said it was yeah. how do you maximize ratings and minimize the cost? And so, you just had. A, I mean, you just Tartikoff was your boss. So, I mean, you were a pretty young guy. Warren. I mean, it was Warren. Oh, sorry, sorry, and Warren Littlefield. Sorry. So he like it was just him. You kind of dealt with this. You built out the schedule and got the okay from him. Like, how that? How that whole um, work? Well. I mean, schedulers are kind of interesting characters. Uh, <laughs> they generally feel they are and probably are the smartest people in the room. I'll be honest. They don't have the kind of self-interest that most of the people in the room have. Right, they don't yeah. have agendas. They don't have personal agendas. They're generally more of a consigliere than anything else. Right. Their job, and it's true of the, and we're all very close. We we all to this day, we all know each other, we respect each other. Even though when we were on other networks, we would do everything to destroy each other, but it was done out of respect. We we knew we're the only people who knew what it felt like to be doing the job at the other networks. Um, so it really, you can't do your job unless you have this job, unless you have the respect and the trust of your boss. Uh, and that includes if I turn around and you know, stick a knife in my back and want my job. Mm. Warren knew, Gail Berman when I was at Fox, Peter Lagori when I was at, they all knew that I had no interest in their jobs. I wanted to go home, have a family life. I can't. I'm not a very good at lying to people in front of their face. Um, it's not what I do. So um, I would. The way I did the job, and I'm sure it's the way others do it, is, you know, I had my uh, my group. And by my group, I meant, I mean, generally the number twos in various areas of the, like, I was very, very close with the number two guy in sales. I had um, uh, two people in finance out in Burbank who I was extremely close to. I was, ex I was very close to John Agoli in business affairs and then his his. Uh, successor, so or was predecessor, yes, successor. So I was always close to these people, and uh, there were people in in sales strategy in New York, and we grew up in a way together in the business. So we weren't our bosses, but we were all people who our bosses trusted, and that was kind of the the I call us the shadow cabinet. So over the course of the year. And by the way, Warren knew I was talking to these people. It wasn't like I was doing anything behind his back. Right. Warren knew that over the year, these were the people who I would be talking to daily to come up with what our strategy is going to be and what do we need to do either right now or moving forward. And then um, depending on who was in the jobs, uh, and that would vary a lot, if the heads of development, comedy, drama development, were the kinds of people who wanted to hear what, I felt they needed to develop. Uh, that was great. Um, and sometimes they didn't want to hear. And they were generally wrong. You know, you walk in, you'd, you'd look at the development schedule, that's nice. So where am I going to put these things? You know? Right. So it was, it's the job required uh, a lot of communication, a lot of trust. And at the end of the day, it would be my boss and myself. And then when Don Allmeyer, came out and became Warren's boss. So the three of us would pretty much have the final say um, in, in terms of the schedule, but they trusted me enough to let me do it where, you know, yeah. 
Interesting. So, so how much interaction? It sounds like. I mean, I'm just curious. How much interaction did you have with the studios and the producers, like with Larry and Jerry, let's say, or you know, was it so much that you know? Did they look at you? Did they they kind of want to brown nose you to make sure that that, that happened a lot? Where they're like, "Hey, let's uh, you know, how you doing? Get me in the good spot, that kind of thing." Or was it more of like you're doing your thing over here, and you know, kind of like they weren't um, interacting much with you? I dealt. I didn't deal with Jerry and Larry that much. I dealt with Jerry's Nash a lot. Oh yeah, George Shapiro yeah. and yeah. And, yeah, and I dealt with Glenn Padnick, uh, who was one of the producers. They would call me a lot. But you know the show was doing so well. There was I never, I, with one exception, it was I can tell you a funny story. Uh, with what uh, it, it was always collegial. It was it was more just checking in. Uh, yeah. they, they were very they were very appreciative that um, they knew I was a champion of the show. So it was very rare that I would get a call complaining. Maybe the closest I would get to a call would be we can't deliver an episode on this day you know, or something like that. Mm. And that's, you know, and again, uh, there were certain shows in your career where you respect the showrunners and the producers and you don't, you don't be a jerk. And there are some shows where you are a jerk, but when it comes to Seinfeld, what am I going to do? Yeah. I mean, yeah, Seinfeld yeah, during that period probably made you nervous uh, quite a few times. I mean, just because of controversial episodes like the, um, uh, the contest and things like that, right? I mean, or you were never kind of concerned with that. They always got things yeah. in on time. You know, the, uh, as my friend Sales would say, the difference between gratuitous violence and art is uh, is twenty share points. You know, I mean, you're <laughs> when you when you're. I mean, other than the contest, which I, nothing nothing ever concerned us. Right. You know, I I remember uh, the penultimate episode of the show was the Puerto Rican Day Parade. Yeah, and we got a lot of crap for that, you know. And I remember saying to Rick Ludwood, I said, you know, what we should do is put out a press release to say, you know, for nine years Seinfeld has made fun of everybody, and the Puerto Rican community should be appreciative that they chose the penultimate episode to make fun of them. Because I mean, that's <laughs> a, they made fun of everybody. Yeah, fun yeah. of I mean, that was the show. The show was very dark, as you know. These people were amoral. They, hadn't, they didn't have any right. scruples. So um, I do remember internally that the, I remember Rick's office, he had uh, he had framed something about the notes from standards for the, uh, they were hilarious. I can't remember them off the top of my head, about what, wh how they could portray, because I think Jerry looks like a penis or George looks like, how they could portray that. And it was pretty, it was funnier than the show actually but we never um rick especially you know rick was would never maybe he did in his own way but would would tell him, no you can't do that i mean it was like the same thing when i was at fox with seth mcfarl you know there's you can pretty much once you get to a certain and you're known for doing a certain thing you gotta be go pretty far out there before we get worried Preston, more uh what show is more important to NBC, Cheers or Seinfeld, do you think? Oh. <laughs> I mean, they were different generate. They were different eras. I mean, for me, it was Seinfeld because, you know, uh, Cheers started when I was in research. Um, Seinfeld was more of, of what we did. It was the must-see TV era. I mean, but that, that I mean, it's, I want to say it's a silly question. They were both extremely important shows, right. as was the Cosby show. You know, right. in many ways, the Cosby Show might might have been more important than either of them because that's the one that that putting aside the issues, you know, that's the one that uh, you know catapulted NBC to two decades of, of of dominance. You know, so I I always give a lot of credit to Man Bat, yeah, which sometimes uh, is not as appreciated as as it was because because that came along in um the 92 93 season and we almost canceled it because we didn't have a place for it on the schedule but it was again another one of these young adult starting out in marriage kind of shows that became a very important piece of what we were doing on thursday night friends is friends you know what i mean right but uh but they're all really they're, they're great shows and they they're as good today as they were when they seinfeld you know, especially they're as funny today, 
because they're universal. It's interesting too, because you were talking before about your job and how you had to sort of, you didn't have like, I guess, a an interest the way the rest of the execs did, right? You just looked at it from the standpoint of like, what can we do to make the whole network better as far as scheduling goes? And you didn't have like ties to a certain show or, you know, emotional, I guess, ties is what I'm getting at. So the, I guess the question is like, you didn't really necessarily have to, be, have to be fans of the show yourself. You just had to understand the fans of the show and know that it had fans of the show and kind of figure out, you know, how to piece everything together. So, you know, you maximized the viewership of those fans. Right. So with that said though, like what were your favorite shows? Like, were I mean, I guess like, were you also a fan of these shows or are you strictly all business and just like, let me just focus oh, on oh, like okay. what, what? <laughs> You can't, you, you, you know, I, I give so many talks to, you know, college students, classes and everything. And at the end they say, you know, what are the things you have to, to know or be about this business? And I say, you have to love television. Got you, know, it. you have to love it. You have to want to watch it. Um, you know, Seinfeld to this day is, I almost consider it above everything else. Forget about what I did for a living. I mean, it was right. just above everything else. When people say, what's your favorite comedy and drama? I say, well, let's put Seinfeld aside. Right. <laughs> you know, because that's sort of like a different kind of thing. But um, no, they were, especially in, you know, in NBC, uh, you know, uh, ER was, uh, was a really, you know, I loved ER. I was a huge fan of Homicide. And um, I figured out a way to keep it on the air for a few years by kind of hiding it on Friday nights at 10 o'clock with Unsolved Mysteries and Dateline. And, you know, we kind of could do its thing over there and not, we didn't have conversations about canceling it. Um, I'm a big, you know, I'm a big fan of reality television. I was, uh, you know, Rick, what was funny about Rick was, Rick Ludman was, you know, he was not a fan of the kind of reality shows that were starting to, emerge in the mm. late 90s so uh, myself and john miller who was the head of marketing kind of became the trash tv reality development executives and uh so I, I to this day i still enjoy you know reality television i mean american isle is still in its early years is still one of the greatest shows in the history of television in my mind um not just because i worked on it but um yeah, so I mean, I, I still to this day, I mean, I watch a lot of TV, and uh, yeah, as, uh, try as George would say, because it's on TV. And uh, <laughs> well, well, why do you get rid of Hunter Preston? We're really upset about that. I was, uh, that was not me. I wasn't there. I was, <laughs> well, I was branded. It, it's funny. <laughs> it's funny you mention um, Seinfeld. We talk about it a lot. We we love the show. But we're also kind of critical of the of the later years, but clearly the ratings were through the roof. It was hard to argue, right? But um, you know, NBC, I feel like, and they got rid of the NFL at that point, right? They kind of used Seinfeld as uh, as an anchor to to support a lot of other programming, right? The way that with the way they use the NFL, the networks use the oh, NFL. We never get rid of it; it gets taken from us, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you lost it, I guess. So. <laughs> yeah. Outbid, yeah, yeah. We almost. I, I remember. I, I don't know how public this is but uh we made a bid for monday night football and i remember i think it was on abc at the time yeah and we were in the process of renewing er which was the biggest show on television and everybody and, and uh abc thought there's no way that nbc is going to pay the money for monday night football and renew er and they knew we were going to renew er and meanwhile, behind the scenes, we were also trying to get Monday Night Football. So, um, yeah, I mean, nobody walks away from football. Right. Yeah. I'm sure if somebody could, they take the whole, they take everything. Um, so, so, Preston, you know, so recently I know you worked on the Discovery uh, Plus um, streaming. I, I have to think from someone in that, that was in your position for so long with scheduling and must-see TV and appointment television the whole streaming thing has got to be a whole, I don't know, a whole different bag of work. Can you, can you talk to a little bit of that and what it was like to kind of focus on that now after doing this, you know, working yeah. on for so many well, years in, in the other way? Yeah. I, I mean, I think all television is television. I mean, you know, if you think, if you look at, at one point, binging, right. 
Right. There's about binging. Now you're seeing more and more shows dropped every week. You're, there are things called fast channels. What are fast channels? They're, they're networks. I mean, it all. I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that at the end of the day, the only thing that really matters is the show. And everything else is just people trying to act like they're reinventing the wheel. Um, so, I mean, I started in 1980. So I've gone through a lot of transitions. And at the end of the day, I believe it's still television. And yeah. I look at, uh, uh, well, you know, even before I, I worked on Disco the launch of Discovery Plus, uh, one of my good friends, Melva Benoit, who was head of research at Fox when I was over at Fox, we infiltrated Netflix and pitched them a lot of ideas, uh, having, you know, looked at their, their web their site and everything. Uh, also pitched them the idea of linear channels, which they're now starting to do. <laughs> and, you know, of course, we got thank you very much, never heard from them again. And then we sit there and chuckle as we see that a lot of the things we told them are, are coming to fruition. Uh -huh. uh, because, you know, uh, the thing I, I find about streamers is they're really bad at helping the consumer navigate their sites, in my opinion. Um, that, I agree. Uh, you know, and, and I remember the last time I was in the scheduling room with Fox, um, I said that, you know, because at that point it was like, look, more and more people are not watching um, or not watching live. So you have to start looking at um, your schedule as a homepage as opposed to a schedule. And I think it's the same thing with, with the streamers now is that, you know, when I go on most streaming services, even if I know what I want to watch, sometimes I can't find it. You're 100% right. You, this is, yeah, you're 100% right. They should make it like a homepage. Exactly. That's a good yeah, point. They should, they should figure, they, and that's where I think the, the next generation of schedulers are going to reside. Um, and I'm seeing, again, because we all know each other, I'm starting to see that the, uh, the streaming services are starting to look around for people who have the skill set that I was, I was actually approached by one of the streamers to basically be their head of schedule. Right. I'm 71 years old. I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> I, I, I don't, you know, I, it was bad enough when I was younger. I didn't believe anybody could tell me what to do at this stage of my life. It's like, get off my lawn, just leave me alone. <laughs> want me to do the job but I, I i so i don't i don't feel intimidated i don't i'm not one of these people who goes oh you know in the good old days when i was doing the job this is you know i think right. that it's always been evolving i remember when um the network started putting their shows online when i was at fox uh one i had uh a grand total of four people in my three people in, in addition to myself in scheduling. And I told one of them, your job is to find out every meeting where people are talking about putting our shows somewhere other than on our air. And you go to that meeting, even if you're not invited, just go because they don't know what they're doing and they're going to do stupid things. And you have to be there to stop them from doing the stupid things because you understand how this all works. And she would, she went and she would come back and say, you can't believe what they want to do. So there's always a need for people who have the bigger picture, understand the connections among all the, the components of this. And I think that's, uh, I think we're still in the early stages of streaming. And I think eventually you're going to see more. It's going to, it's going to, you can see more linearity. You're going to see more and more weekly dropping of shows. You're going to see more thinking about the competition and what they're dropping. It's going to, you know, it's going to start all looking the way it looked back in 1991 when I started just with a different delivery. System. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's more of a personal prime time versus, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. what the schedule is, uh, to press before we let you go, I'm just curious back to Seinfeld. Um, did syndication play a, a big role in in that move to Thursday night? Like, did be, because it was on syndication, was there like a, I don't know, like a bigger following and 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 just more of an opportunity? You thought that um, it would grow bigger on Thursday night because of syndication, or did that not play a part? 
No, I, I, I mean, uh, for us, syndication meant nothing. Right, right. But I meant we, we didn't own it. Um, for the show itself, of course, you know, putting it. I don't think we thought. I, I, I can always speak for myself. I didn't say to myself, "Oh, I'm going to make so much money for Jerry Seinfeld by putting this show at 9:30 on Thursday." I thought <laughs> we need the next Cheers. You know, we we need to rebuild, and this is the show I felt could rebuild Thursday night for us. Um, the funny thing about syndication, and I'll, t- I'll tell you a little secret. One of the reasons why I think the show succeeded the way it did is because nobody saw the first 18, 19 episodes of the show. Well, we did, but a lot of people oh, did. Yeah, no, no, Agreed. no. I'm talking about, well, you were, you were a kid. Uh, yeah, no, we were watching. Saying, what? No, I'm saying a lot of, you're right. No one saw it. Yeah, ratings yeah, I'm saying if you yeah. look at the ratings. And no one saw of, it. Of the, yeah, they hadn't been seen. The way the way uh, license deals work is you get you get the 22, 24 episodes of a show, you get a chance to repeat those episodes, and then you can do eight third runs of episodes. What I did, since I realized nobody had seen those first eighteen episodes, is I used them. A lot of people say, "Okay, we're in season three. I'm going to repeat all of season three, and then I'm going to repeat a couple more episodes from season." No. What I did was anytime I had a chance, I needed to repeat an episode, I took an old episode. Yes. And I played it. And they played like originals. And I remember Warren one day saying to me something like, you know, I don't understand this. The show, these repeats are playing as, I go, because nobody saw them, Warren. Right. You know, now I had had a certain number of years where I can do that. Because once the show goes into syndication, you can't go back to prior episodes. So the, the funny story is I ran every one of those episodes three times, okay? Except one, the heart attack. For whatever reason, and to this day I still don't know, other than I think they just wanted to drive me nuts. <laughs> um, Rick Ludwin came, or Todd Schwartz was Rick's assistant, uh, worked with Rick, came into my office and said, Jerry does not want you to run the heart attack again. I said, what? And said, so he just doesn't want you to run. And I said, but don't don't they see how I've been taking these third runs? And, you know, the show looks huge because of this. No, he doesn't want you to run. So what am I going to do? I could be a jerk and say I have every right to run. And it's fine. I won't run it. A couple of weeks later, uh, Todd comes in my office and he says, uh, there's an episode called The Bubble Boy. Mm-hmm. And he says, watch The Bubble Boy. Or I got the script said, are you going to get the script for the bubble boy? And my name was in the script. When they're uh, sitting at, they're sitting at a diner and some local comes running in and says, some guy, you know, busted the bubble of the bubble boy. And they go, Bill, Preston, what are we going to do? That was a shout out to me. That was a thank you <laughs> wow. for not running the episode. Oh my God. That's a great story, man. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, so it was, um, I mean, look, the show, uh, the show is making the money because it deserves to make the money. Uh, moving it to Thursday took it to another level, uh, obviously. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's deserved everything that it's, it's earned. I really believe that. Yeah. And now, now we know, now we know why the season two is our favorite. Is one of my, it's ingrained in my head. I must've seen those episodes more than any other ones. I definitely saw them every time you replayed them those three times. Plus when George is in the back of that ambulance and he's all purple and he's eggplant, I'm an eggplant. (laughs) I I just lost it. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, uh, Preston, this was uh, this was a great trip down memory memory lane. It was really really interesting to get insight on um, the development of the show and how you kind of schedule it. So, I mean, thanks so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Preston. This it was, was great. Me. Actually, Preston, did how, was Bob uh, Balbon? How accurate was he to to Littlefield? <laughs> um, demeanor wise, they were pretty. So Warren was very very, you know. He was smaller than Brandon, you know. He was there's a lot of similarity with glasses. Um, I would say, uh, it was a pretty if there was anybody who was going to play Warren, that was a pretty good choice to play Warren. The guy who played Rick in the pilot 
episode. You know, the episodes where they pitch Kevin Page. Yeah, we we yeah. we had him on. Yeah, we he, him he on. was very. He was. Uh, that he was just like him. Pretty, that was a pretty good choice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had so, him on, uh, Kevin Page. Yeah, no, that was uh, Warren. Warren's just a very uh, other than when he uh, got angry. And I would get a, <laughs> a call from his assistant to come down and calm him down after he destroyed half of his office with a baseball bat, which happened on occasion. <laughs> um, <laughs> you go in there. I go, he's got a bat. <laughs> no, no, you go in there. He'll, he'll listen to you. <laughs> oh, man. Great time. Those are very amazing, amazing years there. And, uh, yeah. Well, you've had a, you've had a great career. and. Uh, Best of luck with Discovery Plus. I know you had your hand in that, so uh, yeah, that was uh, that was in, well, that was Zaslov. Zaslov worked. We worked together, and Vince Manzi, who I worked with, Vince's group came up with the Must See TV um, title. You want to hear that story? You got a second? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He uh, we used to have every day. We would have a two thirty meeting in, in Don Olmeyer's office, and it was again based on General Electric's something called QMI, Quick Market intelligence so his reports would come into the room every day even if we had nothing to say we'd come in the room and we'd go around and people would say what was going on in the business going on in the department and it was a friday and you know this is when uh we were really starting the the, the night was exploding and abc had uh on friday nights had tgif thank goodness it's friday yeah. and i just innocently said you know maybe we should brand the night you know, if ABC can can uh, call Friday night TGIF, you know, why don't we come up with something for Thursday night? You know, I think ER was my I can't might have not been ER yet. So Don said to Vince and John Miller, who were the marketing people, come back with, and Vince said that you know they, they were like rolled their eyes like oh fuck you know press it again with fucking ideas and, you know <laughs> so they came so Vince said that they you know they put put the group together and they came up with some ideas and everybody hated everything. And said, okay, let's go to lunch. And he said, somebody in the back of the room said, how about must see TV? And they went, that sounds good. <laughs> and that's how it happened. And just oh, like that. Wow. Just like that. Yeah. No, no, no market research, no focus group. <laughs> no nothing. It was like some jerk in the back of the room said, okay, we're going to lunch. I don't want to come back and do this anymore. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> Can't miss it. Awesome. Press Thanks, Preston. Thank you. That was Take awesome, you. man. Thank you.